Bless you. It's such an honor to be with y'all today. Yeah, so I get to Israel, and they're like, hey, you're going to have a, a roommate. And I was like, a roommate? Oh, Jesus. It's like, do I know the guy? No, you don't know. I'm like, ah. And I tell you, man, me and your pastor, Pastor Bobby, man, we, we, we laughed, we prayed, we cried together. It was a powerful, powerful time. And uh, I know I kept them up because I, I, I talk so much when I get excited and I meet new people. So I probably kept them up some nights. <laughs> so sorry. But uh, anyway, turn with me in your Bibles. Turn to John 17. John 17, one of my favorite scriptures. This is Jesus praying, right? Just Jesus praying for us. Love Alabama. Actually, my, part of my family heritage is from Alabama. I'll get to the little bit, a little bit of that in a little bit. So uh, I know you had your 200-year anniversary just a few months ago. There's so much rich history on the soil. Even the, the connection with this church, the, the, the marriage between the old and the new all coming together. I think that, that's what God is doing right now. He's marrying different things together, bringing us together in powerful ways. John 17. Uh, also, too, the story you're going to hear today uh, is... But what I'm sharing today is like just the tip of the iceberg of the story. I have a book out uh, at the end of the service called The Dream King. Please pick that up because it's going to equip you not just with uh, having conversations around healing the racial divide. It's going to equip you on how to pray over these issues and contend for revival and the spiritual awakening. I mean, you know, we, that's what we need right now more than anything. We need a spiritual awakening. We need revival. So John 17, I love this scripture because this is Jesus praying and he's allowing us to hear us pray. And so I began to meditate on what is it like to hear somebody praying for you. And I remembered the Lord reminded me of what it was like when I was my little backslidden knucklehead self. You know, nothing worse than being a backslidden Christian, right? You know, fitting anywhere. But um, remember those years, and I'm, I was in my 20s. I was a student at Morehouse College. But I'd come on for the summers, and I'd do the club scene there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I call myself trying to sneak into the house around 2 or 3 in the morning. Right, so I'm creeping into the house, but who's up praying for me at two or three in the morning? Still up, my mother. Mama's up praying for me, and she's just going to town praying for me and just uh, contending for my purpose, contending for my destiny. You know, I had a couple of Michelobes or whatever in me, but how many of you know that's a buzzkill? Hearing your mama pray for you is a buzzkill, and to hear what she was praying for. And I remember later on when I finally really gave my heart to the Lord and I gave my life to Jesus. I, I remember those prayer times. Thought about somebody else praying for me. But then I realized, I talked to my mother about it. She knew that I was in the room. She knew that I was sneaking into the house. Right? She knew that I was in the room listening to her pray for me. So turn to your neighbor and say, Mama knew. Yeah, Mama knew. Your mama knew too. Your uncle, your mama, they knew it when you were sneaking in too. But they kept praying because they wanted you to know what God's plan was for your life. They wanted to know what they were contending for related to your purpose, your destiny. This is why Jesus recorded this prayer here for us. We're sneaking into his prayer meeting. He knew we'd be reading this. So here is what he's praying. He's praying for us. He's praying for the church. John 17, starting at verse 19 says this, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Then he says this, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, talking about the 12, but then he says this, but for those also who believe in me through their word, turn to your neighbor and say, now he's praying for you. What is he praying? That they may all be one, even as thou art of me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory which thou hast given to me, I've given to them that they may be one. Just as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in what? Unity. That the world may believe, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them, even as thou didst love me. God's going to use the United Church to heal a divided nation. That's why I love what I saw first service, even the second service. You have no idea how God is going to use y'all in the next coming years, not just in this region, this place is Florence, but the state of Alabama. I think God has an international call on this church. And there's some powerful things God's going to use through this church to spread what you have here. Don't take your unity for granted. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. But can I pray for you right now? Thank you, God. Thank you so much for this amazing fellowship, the amazing leadership here. 
And Holy Spirit, I ask you, we invite you into this place right now. Lord, come have your way. Holy Spirit, do what you do best and do what you love most to do. Make us love Jesus more. Father, would you come and answer your son's prayer and give us his unfinished business so that generations even yet to be created can praise you. And everybody said, Jesus' name, amen and amen. So you're probably wondering what this hunk of tin is doing up here. This has actually been in my family, passed down. It's believed to be about 200 years old. Passed down at least seven generations in my family. It was used by the slaves in my family. They use it for cooking. They use it for washing clothes, but they use it for another purpose. I'll get to that in another moment. But it reminds me, I was reminded of it, honestly, a few, few years ago. Uh, I, reminded, I was reminded of this part because of a sermon that I had, and also I remember the I Have a Dream speech. And there's this one clip from the I Have a Dream speech I want to play for you guys. Can we play that real quick? Powerful, powerful speech, right? I love that speech because I'm one of those sons of former slaves. And this pot was used by the slaves of my family. That's like I said, they use it for cooking. They use it for washing clothes, but secretly it was used for prayer. It's been passed down many generations for that purpose, to be a reminder of all those who contended for our freedom and our family. And um, I don't think there's a mistake that this pot comes from Lake Providence, Louisiana. That's my for, where my forefathers were slaves on my father's side of the family. Lake Providence. You know, Providence is a powerful word. Matter of fact, the pilgrims used to call God just that, Providence. And Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary says that Providence is the continuous activity of God by which he preserves and governs. It's the way God looks over seemingly insignificant things and apparent accidents. In other words, you have no idea how many things God prevented from happening for you to get here today safely. You have no idea how many things you thought were accidents or mistakes and you just kind of stumbled into that job, stumbled into that promotion, or moved into the next place in your life. Why? Because God was working all things together for your good because you're called according to his purpose. But then also, too, there are times when all those things happened because somebody was praying for you. Talked about my praying mother. I even had these folks back here sometimes, you know, some, some 200 years ago, praying for me. Not just praying for me, but praying for all of us. And that's the way you understand what providence is doing. The only way you understand what providence is doing is when you begin to pray. I like the way uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, William Temple, used to say it. He said, when I pray, the coincidences happen. But when I stop praying, the coincidences stop. <laughs> In other words, you start praying, and all, all of a sudden these uncoincidental coincidences begin to happen. And you start seeing what God is doing. The way you participate with what providence is doing, the way you participate with what God is doing is through the place of prayer, but it's way more powerful when we start doing this thing together. You're going to see that as I share this story. Also, I want you to know this is not just my story. You're being woven into this story. You've been we all are being woven into the storyline of the ages right now with what God is doing with answering his son's prayer in John 17. That makes sense. So the best way for me to understand the New Testament understanding of providence is Ephesians 2 and 10, where it says that we're God's workmanship and we're Walking out in Christ Jesus, the works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. The word workmanship is a powerful word, y'all. It's the word poema. Everybody say poema. Poema. You hear the word poem in there, right? So think, up, think about it. You're God's poem. You're his song. But even greater than that, the word poema was a word that was used to describe someone who was a skillful tailor or fabric maker. In other words, God has this tailor-made plan. He has a tailor-made destiny for all of our lives, right? And so have you ever seen somebody who's like, crocheting or, or weaving something together. On one side of the tapestry, it looks like just a bunch of knots and a bunch of mess and doesn't make sense. And then they say, oh, no, let me show you what I'm working on. They turn it around so you can see what they're working on. That's what God is doing with this story, I believe. He's letting us see a little bit of what he's working on. He's turning the tapestry around so we can see what he's working on. So, yeah, we have Fox News and we have MSNBC and everything else. We have enough stuff with what people call the fake news. 
other news. But listen, I'm here to tell you there's good news. There's some good news about what God is doing to heal the racial divide. There's good news about what God is doing to bring revival in our nation. And we are on the cusp of one of the greatest moves of God this nation has ever seen. So the only way to get into this to help you understand that, I, I have to tell you about what happened to me. Back in 2000, I began to get this heart for just contending for revival, contending for a move of God in our nation. Started reading about the first great awakening and the second great awakening, those powerful revivals. Started reading about the Azusa Street revival. And about that time, uh, I read a book by a guy named Bill Bright. And at the end of the book, he said, God, give me 40. He said, give me two, two million people who will do a 40-day fast for revival in our nation. I said, God, make me an answer to that man's prayer. And God gave me the grace to do this extended fast. So the first day of that fast, somebody spray painted my neighbor's car in my neighborhood. I said, God, what do you want me to do? He said, start prayer walking in your neighborhood. How many of y'all prayer walking in your neighborhood? Well, at least you pray over your property, just like we saw with the Stanley family. Listen, you start covering things in prayer. You start prayer walking land, prayer walking property. God starts moving on your behalf when you begin to do that. So if you're not doing it, start. Powerful things can begin to happen. So I started doing that, and I started prayer walking my neighborhood. Y'all, listen, what happened is before long, I got a chance to meet people who uh, had been out of church for a while, even people from other religions. They started giving their life to Jesus. I met folks who were sick. Pray for them. They started getting healed. But even greater than that, God broke my heart for revival in all of America. And all I, all I could do was just walk and weep and pray for revival. I would go early in the morning and late at night because I had this one little nosy neighbor. He'd be looking out the windows, and she'd be on her phone at the same time looking at me. And I imagine her saying, yeah, the, yeah girl, there he go again. And he crying again. <laughs> just walking and crying. I don't know what his wife is doing to him, but... Lay down praying for you. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> but little that I know, Mr. Poema was weaving me and connecting me, not just to some unfinished business, but also to a new group of people who are contending in prayer. So I go to this powerful prayer gathering there in Washington, D.C., and then after that prayer gathering, 400,000 people showed up to fast and pray for revival. I found out about another small gathering there in Colorado Springs, Colorado, so I decided to go there. And... Uh, Small gathering, about 500 people there. I was just this guy nobody knew who was in the back of the room. And there's this little lady named Cindy Jacobs, who I didn't know at the time. She calls up a man named Dutch Sheets, who I didn't know at the time, and calls up another young man named Billy Olsen. And she starts praying and prophesying over them that they would go to Williamsburg, Virginia, and do prayer and revival meetings. And then she stops and she says, hold up, there's something to this, because Dutch, his real name is William, because Billy, his real name is William. Here we are talking about them going to Williamsburg. Does anybody know what William means? And I'm in the back, and I just blurted out and said, it means noble spirit, resolute protector, because I'm a William. I know the, I know the meaning of my name. And then she says, that's right. Who said that? And I was like, oh. Because I just wanted to be a fly on the wall, right? So I just kind of raised up my hand. She said, you're a William too, aren't you? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, get down here. Then she said, no, really, come down. It's too white up here anyway. Come on down. <laughs> But when the three of us get connected together, William Dutchies, William Bilios, and me, William Ford III, when we get together, the Spirit of God falls on all three of us. Dutchies looks, looks at me with tears in his eyes and says, hey, if we do this prayer together, you have to come with us. Honestly, y'all, I thought, okay, this is going to be like church camp or something, right? We're going to exchange phone numbers and never hear from each other again. But Mr. Poema was connecting something together. So... Dutch shared this powerful message on uniting in prayer and the synergy that's created throughout working together in prayer. I'll share just like a couple of minutes of that in just a moment. So I'll share with him the story of this kettle pot, how it was used, and we thought about doing a prayer journey together called the, called the Kettle Tour. So we thought <clears throat> we go to this place in Williamsburg, Virginia, in the Jamestown settlement. But then he, Dutch said, you know what, let's expand it. Let's go to all the places where the first great awakening and the second great awakening broke out. And let's pray for the redigging of the wells of revival to break open again in our nation. He said, I'll see all the names of the cities you want to go to. So about this time, I'm thinking, okay, God, I don't know any of these people. I need confirmation. How many of y'all play the confirmation game? Right? My friend Matt Lockett talks about the confirmation game. He says where it's basically you put out these series of really, really hard things for God to confirm to you so that something happens. And if it happens, then that means it has to be God. Then you're supposed to do it. So you make it really hard. And, of course, God is God. You're not to test God. But God says, you know what? I'll do it for you because I love you and I want you to know this is me. So you, make out the, you put out this fleece and you set it down. You say, okay, God, this is really you. You need to do this, this, and this. And then you look at it and then God does it. And then you look at it and you go, 
okay, but if it's really you, <laughs> do this, 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 and this. That's kind of what I did with this. I said, God, this is, if this is really you, I need you to confirm this for me. And so Dutch sends me all the names of the cities they wanted to go to. And when I looked at them, y'all, I was dumbfounded because when he sent it to me, on his list, all the names of the places they wanted to go to, all the cities they wanted to go to were actually names of the streets in my neighborhood that I've been prayer walking. Yeah, like, all, like all of them except two. For example, went to Jamestown, the original, the original settlement. Jamestown Court was across the street from me. Went to Princeton University. Princeton Street was two streets behind me. Went to Hanover, New Hampshire. Hanover Street was next to Princeton Street. Went to Dartmouth University. Down the court was West Virginia. Left. I mean, literally, I could go on. And we went to the Chesapeake Bear. And at the time, I lived on Chesapeake Street. So why we got to do this with a white man named Dutch and a black man named William III? Well, the Dutch were the first ones to send slave ships into America in 1619. 400 years ago, that happened on August 25th last year. And William III, that king from England, was the first king from England to send slave ships into America. God was saying, I want to use your relationship to show that I want to reverse the effects of yesterday's pain. Turning the tapestry around so we can see what he's working on. It's Acts 17, 25 to 27, where God says, I made from one blood many nations and determined the bounds of your habitations and the neighborhoods you're going to be born into and the families you're going to be born into, that we all may seek after God and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. And the thing that connected us, Dutch and I together was this teaching that he had on synergy. Now, synergy is when you take two separate things and when you connect them together, they don't create an additional power, but a multiplicity of power. Scientists say if you take two horses and put them together, if they're pulling the same load, it creates so much exponential power, it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. Now, spiritually, we know that one could put a thousand in flight and two could put what? Ten thousand in flight. That's synergy. So think about it. We saw getting all this agreement in prayer between red, yellow, black, and white. We saw getting agreement in prayer between the old and the young, male and the female. We can see the synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we've never seen before. Right, Psalm 133 says it best. Well, how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in what? Unity. is. It's like the anointing on the flows from Aaron's head onto his beard, onto his robe. And then the Bible says, for there, everybody say there, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. In other words, God's looking for a place called there. And honestly, it looks a whole lot, whole lot like a place called here. In other words, there's so much unity through diversity in this place. Y'all have no idea how much power that is latent in this place, in the place of prayer. So I'm, I'm glad y'all are a church that doesn't just meet together on Sundays and Wednesdays. There's such a, a connectedness here. I love what you have here. Listen, do not take what y'all have here for granted. Fight for your unity. Endeavor to maintain the unity, the spirit, and the bond of peace. Amen? Amen. But that said something that was so powerful. He said this, not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, you can also agree in prayer with the generation behind you. He talked about how he's at his alma mater, this old Bible school, and he's leading the student body there in prayer. And while he's leading them in prayer, he hears the Lord say to him, Dutch, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of the founder of this school. And he thought, okay, God, is this really you? Because that man's dead. He's been dead for like 30, 40 years, and I know you're not in the talking to the dead. And the Lord said to him, I didn't say agree with him. I said agree with his prayers. His prayers are still alive before my throne. There are things I promised this man in prayer that I want to release into this school right now, but I can't do it yet because I need this generation to come agreement with that generation. I want to release the synergy of the ages coming together. So the concept is this, is that God will start something one generation and complete it exponentially through future generations. God promises Abraham a nation, then he raises up an Isaac, then a Jacob, breaks that Jacob thing off that boy and makes him Israel because he promised this man back here a nation. And when he did it for Israel, it was just as if he'd done it for Abraham. So finally, a Hebrews, Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 made sense to me where it says, all these by faith, talking about the great heroes of faith, they were approved for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So that apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect without us. In other words, there's this whole company of people looking over their balcony in heaven, y'all, and they're looking at us and they're saying, hey, body, hey, Will Ford, don't mess this thing up. Because God started something in us that he wants to complete exponentially through you. Jesus said it best when he said, what well, greater works than these are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. And they'll start something in one generation and complete it exponentially through future generations. In other words, we all have unfinished business. Turn to your neighbor and say, you got unfinished business. You have unfinished business. 
So everybody talks about generational curses. Yeah, they're real and they're powerful. They go to three and four generations, sometimes 10. But listen, generational blessings go to a thousand generations. That means basically forever. And the blessings are way more powerful than the curses. And there's unfinished business that we have in the place of prayer. And God wants to unite us today with what he started yesterday in the place of prayer. We say that powerfully in Psalm 133. Because it says that what? That oil flowed from Aaron's head onto his beard and then onto his robe. We use Psalm 133 to talk about us working together. But listen, the work primarily was prayer. Why do I say that? Because Aaron was a high priest. He was, he was being that priestly place of prayer and so are we. We're called to take up that unfinished business. And here's what's powerful about that garment that was on the priest. That one garment was passed down from one priest to the next priest to the next high priest. And the powerful understanding about that is this, is that as that garment was passed down, the anointing oil that was on that garment was accumulated and compounded every generation. In other words, let me just put it to you like this. See, we don't understand this because when we anoint somebody, they would put a little oil on our finger and we thump somebody on the forehead and we call it a day, right? <laughs> That's not the way they did it back then. According to Jack Havert and other scholars, they would take up to half a gallon or a gallon of that thick anointing oil and they'll pour it all over that high priest's head. And as the oil dripped down, it went from his head to his beard, listen, then onto his robe. That one robe was then passed down to the next high priest. And as that new high priest was anointed, that oil that was on him dripped down from his head and then eventually it mingled with the anointing from the past on the same robe. Then that same robe was passed down to the next high priest. In other words, there's supposed to be a momentum building anointing that goes from generation to generation to generation. In the place of prayer, the saturation of the ages, if you will, God's looking for us to come in agreement like that with what he started in the previous generation. So everybody's looking for the next woman there, I'll lose something, or the next purpose-driven this or that. Listen, those are great titles. Those are great authors. That's not my point. My point is this. God is not after originality right now. He's after a successor. And to a successor, he'll release a double portion of anointing on them that's so powerful and not only make them impactful in this generation, but make them a springboard for future generations to come in the place of prayer. So when I heard that and I got that understanding, I was a wreck, y'all, because I remember this kettle pot in my family. Like I said, it was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes, but secretly, they used it for prayer. They were owned by a slave master there in Lake Providence, Louisiana, who would beat it for any reason, and praying was one of them. See, back then, they wanted slaves to be Christians because they knew the Christian slaves made better workers, but they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves be obedient to your masters, if you want to go to heaven. Now, we know we're saved by grace and faith, not of works. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. We know that, but it was easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. It was also against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. And the irony is that while they did, that, while they did want them to be Christians, they did not want them to pray because they felt like if they prayed, it would foster hope, and if they got hopeful, they would run away. So on this plantation, they were literally beat to death. It would call praying. Give an example how cruel slavery was on this plantation. We had the story passed down in our family about an uncle named Uncle Willie who decided to go fishing without asking. So the slave master decided to strap him to a tree, put both arms and legs around either side of that tree. Decided to make an example out of him. So they took leather straps, which were shredded, put connected to a whip, something like the cat of nine tails, and they beat this slave for father hours until all the flesh was pulled out of his back. The family, in an effort to save his life, they took a huge sheet, put lard or grease on that sheet, and wrapped it around his, around his body to stop the flow of the blood. But uh, in spite of their efforts and because of the cruelty, he bled to death and died. So that's how cruel slavery was there in Louisiana, one of the worst places to be a slave. But listen, the folks who owned this kettle in my family, they were Christians in the middle of slavery, and they decided to pray anyway in spite of the danger. So what would they do? They would sneak into a barn late at night to make sure their prayer meeting wasn't seen, but to make sure it wasn't heard, they used this pot. This is the very pot that they used. And they would take the pot and they would turn it upside down on the cabin floor. They would invert it and send it upside down on the cabin floor. They then would take four rocks and prop up the edges so it would be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They would then prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening, between the ground and the kettle, so that the kettle pot muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down with the pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time, 
So they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. So one day, freedom finally comes to this young teenage girl. We don't know what her name is to this day, but she decided to keep this pot and that story in our family. Now, why would she do that? She's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone, who risked their lives to pray for her. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old right now to experience and really embrace the freedom that she's about to walk into. So she decided to keep this pot and that story in our family as a memorial stone. And she passed it on to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett then passed it on to her daughter, Nora Lockett. Noah Lockett passed it on to her son, William Ford Sr., who then passed it on to William Ford Jr., who then gave the pot to me, William Ford III. So I'm there at this conference, and I'm hearing this man talking about how we need to come in agreement with the prayers of those who have gone before us. And then I remember this kettle. And I thought, oh, my God, I thought about this. To whom much is given, much is required. But then I also thought about the privilege. I thought about the privilege. I thought, oh, my God, I get to agree with the prayers of my forefathers for the freedom of this next generation. And I thought about the exponential results that could be released and created for that. And you think about it. They had a slave master that prevented them from praying. But you know what? We made ourselves willing servants, willing slaves of a master today. You know what it is? It's entertainment. That's the one thing keeping us from praying. Entertainment social media and other things. I'm not t- trying to guilt you into praying. I'm just saying God's looking for a new generation who will lay down their lives for the freedom of the next generation, especially in the place of prayer. So think about it. Here's this kettle pot that caught their muffled voice, but literally there's a prayer bowl in heaven. Revelation 5 and 8 said there are bowls in heaven full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In other words, every time you pray, it's collected in these golden bowls in heaven. Why golden bowls? Because that's how precious your prayers are to God. So listen, there's a prayer bowl over Florence. There's a prayer bowl over your family. There's a prayer bowl over Alabama. God's looking for a new generation to resource the prayer bowls once again. So I was sharing this with my friend Dutch Sheets, and he said, God, you really want us to take some cast iron kettle pot around the country to represent the prayer bowls in heaven? He had his Bible there with him, and he said his Bible falls open to Zechariah 14 and 20. Part B of that verse says, and the cooking pots in the house of the Lord <laughs> shall be like the bowls before the altar. <laughs> so like I said, here's this cooking pot that's called up of prayers. They're saying it was a bowl in heaven that catches our prayers like incense. And Dutch said this to him. He said, wouldn't it be just like God in this justice and irony? They use the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again. I'm glad he said generation because it wasn't just black Christian slaves praying back then. There were also white Christian abolitionists who knew that if any person was a slave was a Christian, then that person was their brother. Many of those white abolitionists had their houses burned. Many of them were shot. They were killed. They were lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and wink at slavery. I started reading about the lives of those abolitionists. I realized they weren't just fighting for justice. They were fighting for their brothers and sisters who were in Christ, who were in slavery. I realized they realized that they, can, they were connected because of the blood of Jesus. That's why I love to tell people this, but this is what I learned from them. See, if my ancestors had been Muslims or Buddhists, I'd have no connection to this part of his history because they were Christians and I'm a Christian. But because they were Christians, none of these my ancestors and forefathers, listen, they're yours too. This is a part of all of our heritage. This is a part of all our inheritance. In other words, I'm just as much a spiritual son of John Wesley and Charles Finney as you are Martin Luther King and William Seymour and C.H. Mason. In other words, when we come together in that kind of unity, that kind of agreement, church, listen, something powerful can happen. The oil can start flowing once again in the prayer movement. Yokes can be broken over a generation. And we can gain a new kind of momentum as we unite together. See, there was this godly remnant of people, not of black Christian slaves, and also white Christian abolitionists. You know what they prayed into being? The first and the second great awakening. Had it not been for those revivals, slavery would have never ended in this nation. There was a Supreme Court law back then called Dred Scott, which said that slaves had no rights in the courtroom. And everybody thought that law sealed the fate of slavery. They called it subtle law. That's everybody's little favorite word now, subtle law. But because God sent revival, that law got broken in the hearts of people so powerfully that people in the North were willing to fight for people in the South who didn't look like them. So listen, I'm daring to believe, listen, the same God who broke the power of Dred Scott, he can break the power of Roe v. Wade. 
He can put an end to systemic poverty. He can stop our schools from being a pipeline to prison. He can shut down mass incarceration. He can shut down the opiate crisis that's happening in the suburbs, and he can shut down crack houses that are taking over the inner city. He's just looking for a new generation of people who will join together and drop their agendas and come together and believe. I began to see that back during their day, the moral crisis of that day was slavery. And the litmus test for authentic revival back then was the ending of slavery. I began to see in our generation, the litmus test for authentic revival would be the ending of abortion. Not just the change of the laws, I'm talking about the change in the people's hearts. The Lord spoke to me and said, William, if I heard the silent whispers of slaves underneath kettle pots, how much more, how much more so do I hear the silent screams of babies being snuffed out in this nation? through abortion. I began to realize, and I don't have time to go into it, but there is a connection between the race issue, eugenics, and that whole population control thing, planting us all connected. The Lord said to me, he said, William, when the people that you cannot see can be dehumanized and become optional, it's inevitable that some of the other people that you can see can also be dehumanized even to the place of elimination. In other words, God weeps over all the shedding of innocent blood. Some people say black lives matter or all lives matter. I get where they're all coming from, but God is saying drill down deeper, life matters. In other words, the same God who wept over Philando Castile is the same God who wept over the five police officers that were killed in Dallas, and he weeps over the shedding of innocent blood of over 60 million babies. And listen, we must contend right now for that to be shifted because life matters way more than we realize. So the Lord began to speak to me about this movement that he wanted to start of prayer that's going to release civil rights to everybody in a powerful way. And he did this through this dream that they gave him about the dreamer, Martin Luther King. In the dream, I'm on my way to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church here in Montgomery, Alabama, where Dr. King basically started the civil rights movement. But in the dream, I couldn't get to Dexter Avenue Baptist until I first picked up Dr. King. (laughs) Side note, there's some things we're going to pick up from our fast so that we move forward in the right direction. But anyway, so in this dream, we, it's a dream. So he, we go over to his house to pick up Dr. King, and he's alive. But in the dream, he had this humongous white duffel bag with black handles on it. In the dream, he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. Then he throws down the vac- bag down violently to come to get his vehicles with us. And I think to myself, man, that bag could make a nice souvenir. <laughs> Shows y'all carnal I am, right? Even in my dreams, I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College, he went to Morehouse College, the bag will make a nice souvenir. So in the dream, I go to pick up the, this baggage, but before I could touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. And in the dream, he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the racial divide in America. I wake up from the dream, tears were streaming down my face. I didn't even realize I've been praying and weeping the whole night, the whole time the dream was going on. I didn't even realize it. I shared the dream with my friend Lou Engel. He begins to weep. And we began to pray, God, what is the interpretation for this dream? I'm like, Dr. King, the Lord reminded me, what did Dr. King say to me in that dream? And the Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black handles, that will be the interpretation for your dream. I knew what the Lord was talking about then because I remember the black handles. The black handles represented me as a black man and how I've been handling my white baggage. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. I know what he's talking about because I know what it's like at 13 years old, myself and three friends. We were coming from a convenience store and a carload full of white guys who didn't know us began to call us the N-word and say they were going to shoot and kill us. They chased us for over an hour and a half. They were probably just ride, but listen, we were terrified. I know what it's like at 19 to be falsely accused of shoplifting uh, by a police officer. And when, I, when he couldn't find anything on me, uh, he, tra- he tried to say ugly things to me to provoke me into a fight. I know what it's like in my 30s to get my first nice house in the suburbs. And the same police officer for the first three months would just pull me over for driving while black at least once a week. I know what that feels like. But you know what I've done? For every police officer and every white person in that region, I put those stories on everybody. Before I had one conversation with anybody, I put those bad narratives on everybody before I had a conversation with them. It's the devil's diabolical plot. You know what he does? It's Revelation 12 where he says the devil is the accuser of the brethren. That word accuser is a powerful word. It's a Greek word, kategoros. It's where we get the word category. 
In other words, the diabolical plot of the devil is to get us to categorize and stereotype each other so that before we can ever have one conversation with each other, we put some bad storyline on somebody else before we can have one conversation with them. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your unforgiveness. Get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of your resentment. Get rid of any guilt manipulation. Get rid of your white baggage so we can all get a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. So the question for all of us right now is this. What color is your baggage? Listen, get rid of it because we need each other. Because only a united church is going to heal a divided nation. So, finished speaking at the church and I had this big 600-page book called Testament of Hope. And it just happens to fall open to the I Have a Dream speech. I didn't even know it was in the book. I go up to Dr. King's old pulpit where he used to preach and I start reading that speech like a prayer. And I get to this part where Dr. King says, I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners sit together at the table of brotherhood. And for the first time, y'all, I started praying for the family who owned our family where this kettle pot came from. But little did I know, Mr. Poema, little did I know that he had more unfinished business for me. So my friend Luingo asked me to come to this prayer meeting that he was going to have January 17, 2005, and share this dream, bring the kettle. We're going to have a conference and speak that night. But that morning, we're going to do a prayer gathering at the Lincoln Memorial. If you put up the first slide for me there, this is that prayer meeting at the Lincoln Memorial. And... Uh, it's January 17, 2005. Now, the person who took this picture, I didn't know him at the time. His name was Matt, Matt Lockett. He showed up there because he had a dream about the guy over the event. The interesting thing is that he had never met him before. He, so he goes to this newly invented thing called Google after having this dream about a man named Lou Engel who's praying for a revival in the ending of Washington. He's like, is this man really a person? He sees that he actually exists. So he comes to that gathering. So he's taking pictures trying to figure out what's going on, especially surprised that he had a dream about somebody he had never met before and they actually existed. So he shows up, and this is one of the pictures that he took. And so you see that hand with the blue sleeve there. If you follow that hand, the end of it, that's, that's my face. So the first time we met each other was on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, a prayer meeting. So I speak that night, and he comes up to me. He said, hold up, you said your kettle pot came from the locket side of your family. My daughter elbowed me as soon as you said that because my last name is Lockett. I thought, interesting. I never met a locket before. How do y'all spell uh, locket with two T's or one? He said, we spell it with two. I said, oh, my family, we spell it with one. So where are your lockets from? He said, Kentucky. It's all oh, mine are from Louisiana. So we thought, cool coincidence, but it was enough, right? It was enough to connect us as friends. So we became friends. He eventually left from where he was working and took over Lou Engel's ministry there in Washington, D.C. He's been there for 15 years. He's, he's over Bound for Life in the Justice House of Prayer there in Washington, D.C., contending in prayer. And, and we've been friends for all this time, contending for revival and contending for the ending of abortion, praying for uh, ending of the, uh, and the healing of the racial divide in our nation. We've been doing that together for years. So, well, fast forward, four years ago, four or five years ago, uh, Matt and Lou, they go to... Uh, they go to Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia to do a prayer meeting. That's what a South uh, surrendered to the North in the, in the Civil War. And they go into the bookstore and they grab the first book that's on the shelf. And it just opens to this random page. And if you go to the next slide for me, he opens the book and it falls open to this page. The last shot, the battle for Lockett's farm. <laughs> Matt's kind of freaking out because he's seeing his name again. He's like the battle for Lockett's farm. And he turns out there is this house called Lockett's farmhouse where well, the last battle of General Lee was actually at that farmhouse. The Northern Army was in the front, the Southern Army was, was in the back. I thought, man, this is interesting. Then he got a call from his brother around that same time. His brother said, hey, I finally got breakthrough in our family history. We were the last land barons in Virginia. We owned lots of property, lots of slaves. And man said, man, do I have a locket story for you? So he starts telling him about this place. And his brother says, hey, I just got the documentation on that. That's literally our family. So in other words, Matt finds out that the Civil War basically ends in his family's front yard. April 6, 1865. So he thought, let's go see this place. So if you go to the next slide, that is the historical marker there at the place. It's still there to this day. And the, the memorial stone says, here Lee fought his last battle, April 6, 1865. Uh, go to the next slide. 
and uh, that's Matt and his family. Go to the next slide for me. They, they still have bullet holes in the house from the Civil War. Go to the next slide for me. And so the owner of the house brings Matt in, and he says, hey, uh, do you know much about your family history? He said, my brother just showed me a few things. He brings him into the house, shows him the exact same genealogy that his brother had written down. It's, it's a hand in a glove. It's totally, it's just his family. Then he says to him, he said, what do you know much about your history? He said, just now learning a little bit about it. He said, well, y'all were the last land barons in Virginia. Y'all, lots of land, had lots and lots of slaves. Some of y'all left here and went to Kentucky. Man says, hey, I know that part. <laughs> but then he said this. He said, some of y'all went to the deep south. And some of y'all went to Louisiana. And before he could ask him, he said to him, oh, yeah, and sometimes there were clerical errors. And for some reason, they dropped the T off the end of your name. So when he heard that, he remembered the conversation we had when we first met each other. And so he flies from D.C. to Dallas, and he brings all this information. And we just talked and prayed and cried and, and thought, oh, God, what if? Is this really true? If you go to the next slide for me, I had a genealogist do research for me. And my oldest known family member was a man named Isaac Lockett. He shows up in the 1870 census. He's living in uh, uh, Lake Providence, Louisiana at the time. 1870, that's five years after slavery. He's 90 years old, so more than likely that was the place where he was a slave there in that plantation. But here's the deal. On this document, he said that he was originally from Virginia. Originally from Virginia, meaning he was probably sold off or willed off from one family member or friend to somebody down in Lake Providence. And so y'all know a little bit about slave history. The slaves always took on the last names of the people who owned them. So we did more research for about a year and a half, and here's what we learned through empirical evidence. Matt's family is the family that owned my family where this killer pot came from. So think about it. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that powerful? Here's my family praying for the ending of slavery, and then all the way up at the farmhouse where the people used to own them, slavery comes to an end in their front yard. But then because he's the God of the past and the future and he loves to heal history, he weaves two people from those same storylines, Matt and I together, Brings us together so we can war against injustice in our day and cry out for awakening together in our time. Because that's the kind of God we serve. Right? Next slide for me real quick. So here we found the actual plot of land where that place used to be where Isaac Lockett lived. So that is the plot of land where he used to live. So think about it. Maybe 150, 200 years ago, there was a prayer meeting in the middle of the night on some barn that, that's no longer there where some people snuck in with the kettle pot this one in particular, to pray not just for my freedom, but for your freedom too. Next slide for me. So the, the town of Lake Providence heard about our story, and this is our first time. This is a, a picture of our, us sharing our story together for the first time. Next slide. And so the town of Lake Providence actually gave us the keys to the city. Listen, God is releasing keys of Providence to open doors no man can close, and to close no man can open in relation to healing the division in our nation. Next slide. So these two people, they actually connected to Alabama. That's Napoleon Lockett and Mary Lockett. They were like the Southern Bell aristocrats of their day. And he was a colonel for the, Confeder for the Confederacy, very wealthy man. But listen, his wife Mary didn't like the fact that the Confederate White House didn't have his own flag. So she hired a designer and she designed and sewed together the very first Confederate flag. And she hand-delivered it to her friend, Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy. In other words, Matt's family is the Betsy Ross for the Confederacy. Right? So she designed this flag here that's called the Stars and Bars. And they thought, well, that looks too much like the Union flag on the battlefield. So let's come up with this flag for the battlefield. So that's the most well-known flag. But isn't it interesting, through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up in nomination, because of the prayers of black Christian slaves and white Christian abolitionists, even in this, own, this same family. Through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up, next slide, the flag of surrender went up in their front yard because of praying people. Isn't that powerful? So um, if you go to the next slide for me. So here's the other interesting thing. As soon as the Civil War was over, it's said that this house became a hospital for both sides. And former slaves worked with white nurses to heal the wounds of the brothers who had been fighting against each other. Listen, that sounds like the church, right? We need to be the ones who are standing in the gap to heal the wounds of the brothers who have been fighting against each other. Just like that house, you're going to take some shots. But listen, it's worth it to stand in the gap with Jesus. Amen. 
Next slide for me real quick. So other interesting thing is that Matt found out that not only did he have, uh, of course, slave owners in his family, he also found out he had revivalists and abolitionists in his family. There's a man named Daniel Lockett who took a strong stand against slavery. He was a circuit rider with Francis Asbury. And the thing we know about the, the, the circuit riders is that they carried three things in their satchel. They carried a, a, a Bible, and they also carried a hymnal, and they also carried a manumission book. The manumission book was so that if there was a slave owner present in their revival services, if they got saved, they would slide their manumission book over to them and say, listen, it was for freedom of Christ. Set us all free. Sign this legal document to set your slaves free. We know that's exactly what happened because everywhere the circuit riders went, the free slave population grew exponentially. So, yeah, he had slave owners in his family. He also had this revivalist and abolitionist. Listen, in all of our families, we have these dominating things called generational curses and generational blessings. They represent dominating themes of storylines, right? But God is shouting to America right now this one thing. What storyline do you want to be a part of? The healing of the hurt, the blessing of the curse. What storyline do we want to be a part of? So, Last story is this. There were these two slaves, a mother and her son, trying to learn how to read and write. The mother knew a little bit how to read. She was trying to teach her son, but they got caught by this former slave owner. It's Lucy Lockett. Lucy Lockett walks, on them, walks in on them trying to teach each other how to read. They get afraid, but she said, no, no, no. What you're doing is good and right. I want to help you. I want to take over your tutelage. So she teaches them how to read and write. We know this story because that young man grew up to be Robert Russell Moton. Who is he? Robert Russell Moton became an education advisor to four presidents. He became the second president of Tuskegee University. And when the Lincoln Memorial was built, the person who did the dedication speech is Robert Russell Moton. That's him doing the dedication speech there. Taught how to read by Matt Lockett's family member. Lucy Lockett. But here's the interesting thing. 41 years later, after he does the dedication, Martin Luther King comes there to do the I Have a Dream speech. And then 41 years later, Matt Lockett and I come to that very same spot to meet each other on the same Lincoln Memorial. Think about it. We're two guys who were led by dreams to the same place where Dr. King said in this, I have a dream speech. I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. So maybe the dream speech wasn't poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. Maybe there's a dream king called the king of kings whose father is still answering his son's prayer. Father, I pray that they will be one so that your glory could come so that the world will believe. Maybe God hadn't forgotten about the prayers of your grandmother and your grandfather. Stand to your feet. So I just want to say this before you listen. I talked about my uncle Willie who unwillingly gave his back to be beaten. But listen, Jesus Christ willingly gave his back to be beaten for us all. And by his stripes, guess what he's doing? He's healing history. And by his blood, he is uniting us. And it's not a mistake that you hear today. Nothing just happens. Hebrew language is not even a word for coincidence. Did you know that? God is weaving something together so powerful in this place, so powerful in this church. I pray that y'all don't take your unity through diversity for, for, for granted because we need each other right now. Can I pray for you, Father, right now? God, I just lift up every person here. And Lord, we do pray over this congregation that you move by your spirit in a powerful way. God, I'm asking that this will become, this will become the landing place for your commanded blessing, that your son's unfinished business could be released in this place. You know, everybody talks about generational curses. They're real and they're powerful. But listen, generational blessings go to a thousand generations. Can we just pray and ask for forgiveness for the sins of our forefathers? Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we, we forgive the sins of our forefathers. Everything from the hatred and the bitterness that was passed down from generation to generation. Lord, everything from the idolatry of the past, sexual immorality, drug addictions, Divorce. God, we forgive the sins of our forefathers, but Lord, we now come together. We ask you, Lord, would you give us the redemptive purpose for which you birthed us into the families we were birthed into?
Would you give us the unfinished business of our forefathers? Would you release the generational blessings that are in our families? No, not just even in the natural, but also in the spirit over this region. What is the unfinished business of Florence? What is the unfinished business of Muscle Shoals? What is the unfinished business of Alabama? God, we ask you, release right now something on a double portion generation so that generations even yet to be created can can praise you, God. We ask you for anointings to mingle, for oil to flow for this generation. Come and move powerful, we ask in Jesus' name on this generation. Everybody said amen and amen. Give God a big praise of glory in this place right now. It's a powerful, powerful story. Some of you, it impacts more than others. But we are in a generation, God is trying to bring unity to a generation because our previous generations were divided. And they, he has a book called The Dream King. It's available out front. He'll be signing books. It goes through the entire story, kind of breaks, breaks it down to you so you can kind of pray through it and walk it out as well. And we want to support his ministry. Uh, God has his hand upon him. This, this message is vitally important to our nation, to our community, and especially in the South at this day and age. Going into election year, our default is division. And he has a message of hope and reconciliation that God is going to use in tremendous ways. So we want to support him. So we're going to receive an offering at the doors as you leave. If you write checks or cash, you can write right after Christ Chapel. Just memo it, Will, for it at the bottom. If you do text, you can just text the, your amount with the word guest behind it, and that will all go to him. Try to get him going to where God wants him to go. And so we just pray blessings upon you. Next week we start a brand-new series called Name Calling. That many of us have been called names, got labels placed upon us, people have called us certain things, and those things do not define us. Only what God calls us defines us. But many people don't know what God calls them. So we're going to learn what God calls us so we can live up to our identity in Christ. So bring a friend with you next week. I love you, Father. Bless these, your people. And bless this offering as they give, Father, as they honor the prophet of this house. Father, let them receive a prophet's reward and a prophet's honor. Father, I praise we leave. We leave as carriers of your hope and carriers of your love into every relationship and every place that we go. Father, as we leave, send us out as missionaries, as ambassadors of your kingdom, to take light and to take salt and to take hope everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Hope you have a great rest of the week. We will see you next Sunday.